Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. You know, many years ago, when we were living down in Devon, down in the West Country, there was a gentleman in the church which we attended called Jeff Chaplin. And he was a very loyal and active member in the church. And over the years, he, he took responsibility for different things as the need arose. At one time, he was working with the children in the Sunday school. And then he changed tack and he started working with the old people in the old people's home. And he used to run a service every Sunday evening. It was quite a big old people's home. There were lots of old people. And he was involved in that. And from time to time, he'd speak to, the, to the, the, the main body of the church. And every time, or most of the time when he was speaking, he would always use illustrations. And I don't mean he'd tell a story to illustrate what he was saying. No, no, no. He would have something to look at and something to see. And I was sort of at the beginning of my preaching career, if that's the right expression to use, and I remember him saying to me, you know, Don, it's very important that you use ear gate and eye gate. And that's how he told me, like that, you see. Because if you have something to show the congregation, then they're more likely to pay attention and they're more likely to understand what you're saying, and they're more likely to remember what you've said. Well, I have to confess to you that over the years, I haven't paid much attention to Jeff's advice. It hasn't been one of my strengths, but this morning, I'm mending my ways, and I have things to show you, and things to look at, and I hope that will help you to pay attention. You won't fall asleep halfway through because it's very disconcerting for preachers when the congregation falls asleep. <laughs> and I hope you might be able to understand what I say. And I hope too that you may be able to remember it. We'll have to sort of see as we go along, won't we? So, over the centuries of time, you know, Christians have used lots of different signs and symbols uh, to identify themselves and sometimes to present some aspect of Christian truth through the sign of the symbol. And if you go into it, you find there's, there's quite a lot of these that have been used over a period of time. We can't look at them all, but we can look at a couple or three of them. So, Mr. Projector, where's our first symbol? Here we are, you recognize that, don't you? That's the ichthus, the fish. And that dates from New Testament times. Um, and it would seem quite an appropriate symbol because, after all, a good percentage of Jesus' disciples were, were fishermen. And much of Jesus' ministry, public ministry, took place around the shores of the Lake of Galilee where there was a fishing industry. And if you go through the Gospels, you discover that, that 
there's at least five occasions when Jesus did a miracle which involved fish. So you can see why the fish is associated with Christianity. It is said that in times of persecution, it was used as a, a sign for identification. So if you were a Christian and you met somebody, you would casually make an arc with your foot like that in the dust. And if the person that you met was a Christian, he would recognize that and he'd respond with an arc in the dust. And the two arcs combined to make the fish. That's what they believe may have happened. And it's interesting too, you know, that the Greek letters uh, for Ichthus the fish it forms an acrostic. Jesus, Christ, God's Son, Savior. So it carried a message to the people of its day. Is there another symbol that we can look at? Let's try the anchor. Now this is based on a verse in Hebrews chapter 6. And the writer says, Our hope is as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And I remember when we were on the boat once, we were cruising up the River Severn, chugging along quite merrily, and all of a sudden there's an almighty bang, and the engine stops, and the propeller stops going around. It turned out that there was a lump of wood which had jammed the propeller. And as soon as the engine stopped, the boat is all over the shop. There's the currents and the wind, and we're going from one side of the river to the trees to the other side into the rushes, and I scramble up to the front of the boat, and we have an anchor there, and I threw it out, and the rope goes tight. You wrap it around the tea stud, and the boat stops moving. And it's held quite solidly there all the time whilst I try and fix the problem. The anchor brings that stability. It makes the boat firm and secure. Do you remember the old hymn, We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. We need an anchor. You know, there's a lot of billows around in life today. There's a lot of pressures and currents and influences which can push us from one side to the other. We need an anchor that uh, brings us that firm security, an anchor bedded in the rock which is unmovable, the love of the Lord Jesus. We need an anchor. I do hope that you've got one, my friend. It's very important that you do. The anchor, are there any more? What about the Celtic cross? There you go. Now the Celts were a, 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 a culture which originated in the years BC, somewhere in the middle of Europe. And over a period of time, they, they migrated to Western Europe, and today, 
The last vestiges of the Celtic culture are found in Scotland and on the western fringes of, of Europe. Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Cornwall, the Breton Peninsula. And of course, the Celts were pagans. But one of the main routes by which Christianity entered the British Isles was through Ireland. So they ran up against the Celtic pagan culture. And many Celts were converted to Christ. And they came up with the Celtic cross. There you go. It's the cross with a circle. And um, the circle with a cross in it was a pagan symbol, religious symbol. And it is thought that Christians changed the pagan religious symbol to make it a Christian symbol. And the Celtic crosses were almost invariably made of granite, big things erected, and, that, and there's still many of them around. In fact, there's, it, the, the focus of it is in Cornwall, down in Cornwall, where everybody goes on holiday. And down there, you'll see the Celtic crosses. They reckon there's over 400 of them down there at, the, at this time. But it was an adaption which they used, perhaps, uh, as they turned a, 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 a pagan symbol to a Christian symbol, they thought that this might be a strong influence on the people around them. If you take the cross or the, the circle array, you end up with the most familiar cross or Christian symbol of them all, the Latin cross. And the Latin cross is without doubt the most popular, the most widely used and the most easily recognized symbol of them all. And it occurs all over the place. Look carefully when you meet my wife and you will see that she has a chain around her neck. And on the chain, there's a little cross. Oh, you say, a very nice piece of jewelry. Well, yeah, maybe it is. But it's more than that as far as she's concerned because it's a way of telling people that she meets who she is and what she believes. And that is so for a lot of people who choose to wear a little cross around the neck or perhaps on the lapel or whatever. It occurs in jewelry. And of course, it occurs on Christian literature and Christian websites. Tracts and leaflets, they invariably have the cross on. Websites as well. This is Canal Ministries, which is, I'm a trustee of this organization. And of course, it's a water-based thing on the inland waterways. So they have, a, 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 the, the, on the website, they have their, their symbol, their sign. It's a boat, but they've converted the mask to a cross. So people look at the website and immediately they know that it's something to do with Christianity. There's another one here that we support, Active Hope over in Warrington. They work with children from poor and uh, chaotic homes and uh, Active Hope, but they've converted the T in the word active to a cross. So once again, people can see that this is something to do 
with Christianity. Leaflets, jewelry, websites, buildings. Buildings have the cross very often both on the outside and on the inside. There was a man called Ray Kroc, I think that's how you pronounce it, and although he didn't set up McDonald's, he was the one who was responsible for expanding it to what it is today. And he had his big yellow M sign that we're familiar with. And in the early days, he, was, he wasn't a Christian or anything, but he was inspired by the cross because he was traveling backwards and forwards, thousands of miles across South, uh, uh, the United States, and he noticed that in every town he went into, there was a building with a cross on it. And people knew what that was all about. This was a building you could go to to worship God. This was a building you could go to to read the Bible, to pray, to sing hymns, to get baptized, to get buried and all the rest of it. Uh, and, and, and he realized that this sign meant something to people and it was in every town. He decided that he wanted the yellow M on a building in every town in America. I don't know whether he's achieved that or not, but there's a lot of them along. And he knew that it, when he got enough of them, people would immediately know that you could go there to get some food of sorts. I'm not a great McDonald's fan, I'm sorry, but there you go. But he was inspired by the cross on the outside of the building. And then there's crosses on the inside of the building, aren't there? And the crosses on the inside of the building are the crosses that the congregation look at. And they remind people of the things that are at the very basis of their faith. Because our faith is not built on myth and legend and wishful thinking and hearsay. It's built on solid historical facts, such as the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, which lies right at the heart of our faith. Now, the cross, the Latin cross, comes in two guises. There is the empty cross and the occupied cross. Now, the empty cross is one that you will probably associate with Protestant churches in the West. The occupied cross you might uh, associate more with Catholic and Orthodox churches of the East. You know, the cross with a little figure of Jesus on. And some people uh, have problems with that. And I think I may agree with them. because For three reasons, really. First of all, because Jesus isn't on the cross. The cross is empty. And the events of Calvary are never going to be repeated, never need to be repeated. The cross is empty and it remains empty. The second is, we don't know what the Lord looked like physically, so we can't produce an accurate representation of the Lord Jesus, can we? And the third reason is, that the occupied cross usually portrays a lie because he's got a very modest loincloth wrapped around him. 
Now look at Mark chapter 15 and verse 24. They crucified him, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. The Lord didn't have a loincloth. They crucified the Lord naked because they wanted to bring the maximum amount of embarrassment and shame down on his head. And make no mistake about it, my friends, we're all implicated in that. We weren't there, but because of our sin, we're all implicated. That's what we did to our Lord and our King, the occupied cross. Now let me show you one other cross. It's sitting on the desk here. I'm going to unveil it. There it is. And I wasn't sure that everybody could see it from the back because it's not very big. So I've put it up on the screen as well. And this is a little bit of an artistic take on the cross. And it was given to me by a friend in the Boders Christian Fellowship who's a bit handy with woodworking tools and things. And I want you to look at this cross. It's sitting on my desk there at home. But I want you to look at this cross, and I think if you use your imagination, you can see it as both an occupied cross and an unoccupied cross. You can see in the middle there, there's an outline of a man, the head, the arms, the torso. It's maybe an occupied cross. But when you look more closely, it's an unoccupied cross because actually there's nothing there. You can see right through it. It's an unoccupied cross. Let's look at a verse in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16 and verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that you must be killed and on the third day be raised again. Now, if you read on in that passage, you find that Peter got all upset and uptight of it. Oh, no, Lord, you're not going up to Jerusalem. We're not. The implication was that he wasn't going to, him and the rest of the disciples weren't going to let him go up. But Jesus said, where's it gone? He must be killed. It was absolutely essential. It was very, very important. And a little later on in the same gospel, he says to disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem. And so he did. And we can imagine him walking along the dusty roads of Palestine towards Jerusalem. And as he walked, you can imagine that the cross, because he knew what was going to happen, and we can imagine that the cross sort of loomed larger and larger and larger. Bethany, the upper room, Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Golgotha, and all the horrors that were in store for him there. And you know, that great cry which we read in our reading earlier, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? It's been pointed out that there has never been any human being who was less prepared to be forsaken by God than the Lord Jesus because he'd lived all his life in close fellowship with his father. And he'd spent an eternity, what we would call an eternity past, with his father. And now, at the time of this trial, all this suffering and all this pain, his father wasn't with him, and he was by himself. We cannot understand or grasp very much about the mental, the physical, and the spiritual pain that Jesus endured on the cross at Calvary. And we may ask, why did he do it? What was it all about? Well, if you ask that question, well, you're, you're introducing about a dozen different sermons, aren't you? Because there's an awful lot of answers to that question. You can think about this, the question of his obedience to his father. He was there because he was obedient. We can think about his love for us. He was there because he loved us. There's lots of reasons. But let me show you one reason that perhaps we may overlook. We find it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And the writer says, look, fix your eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, as Jesus traveled that dusty road to Jerusalem, I believe he could see over the cross. He could see around the cross. He could see through the cross to the other side. And what did he see? Joy that was set before him. He realized that after it was all over, there was joy in store for him. And that was not the only, but certainly one of the motivations that led him to the cross. And we asked, well, what was that joy based on? What was it all for? What was he enjoying? What was it? Surprisingly enough, that joy is about you, my friend. Look at the Luke chapter 15 and verses 4 and 7 there. And here Jesus is talking. And I looked at my notes and I spoke about this last time I was up here on the platform some while ago. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and never to get neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. And he says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. 
joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. And heaven is Jesus' home. If there's joy in heaven, he's going to be involved. And there's going to be joy for the Lord over one sinner that repents. You see, he's interested in the individual. Did you know that when you were converted to Christ, I don't know when it was or where it was or how it came about, so many different circumstances. I got a friend who was an elder in our church down in, and, and he was converted in the middle of a cornfield when nobody else was there at all. He still puzzles about how it happened, but he was certain that it was there in the cornfield that he was saved. And when he was saved, there was joy in heaven. And when you, my friend, were converted, Perhaps as a child in the Sunday school, perhaps in the youth club, perhaps in a service like this, perhaps as a result of seeing a wayside pulpit with a text on, perhaps in some rally that your friends took you to, I don't know. But the moment you were converted, did you know that there was joy in heaven? Did you know that that was part of the joy that Jesus was looking forward to? as he walked the road to the cross, and he saw you, and he died for you. And when you responded to that, when you repented, when you were converted, when you put your faith and trust in him for your eternal salvation, he was really pleased about it, and he was filled with joy. That's one of the reasons why he did it. Here's another. Look at John chapter 15, verses 10 to 11. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be, where? In you and that your joy may be complete. Now, if the little verse about the sheep coming home was about conversion, this is about what I've called, for sake of the sea, compliance. It's about obedience. It's about the Christian life being lived out in the compass of his will and keeping his commands. You know, we need to live a life of obedience. The Christian faith is not about a one-off burst at some rally when we get converted. It's about stepping into a lifelong experience. And one aspect, perhaps the main aspect of that experience, is to be obedient to the will and the wishes of the Lord Jesus. Later on in this passage, he says, this is my command, love one another. It must be very disappointing for the Lord when Christians fall out, mustn't it? You know, when churches split up because they've had some kind of row, and it happens, when some little group of people get a bee in their bonnet and make a big fuss and eventually storm out of the door. 
Now, I'm not saying that you can never leave a church. There may be lots of good reasons why you change churches. It's not the problem that you've got. It's the way you handle the problem that you've got. And it has to be dealt with in love for one another. We don't want a lot of cynicism and a lot of tittle-tattle and a lot of retribution and gossip and, and pettiness and personal sort of aggravation. We need to deal with each other in love. And you know, I like to think that perhaps when the Lord looks at our little congregation here at Antioch, brings him some joy, eh? It pleases him. And what about our personal life? You know, that passage that we quoted in Hebrews goes on, or it talks about uh, how it's possible to be detracted from the faith and get entangled in sin. <laughs> what an expression, to be entangled in sin. And the plain fact of the matter is that we need not only to have our church life, which is pleasing to the Lord, we need our personal, individual Christian lives to be pleasing to the Lord so that our personal lives bring Him joy. And we can't do that if we're all tangled up in sin. We need to throw off, says the writer to the Hebrews, the sin that easily entangles us. Can I ask you a personal question? Are you living the kind of Christian life? Am I living the kind of Christian life that brings pleasure and joy to the Lord Jesus? You remember that when Jesus was baptized, there was a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I've seen his life from Nazareth to Capernaum, Galilee, I've seen it all, and I'm well pleased with it. I like to think that perhaps the Lord can look at my life and look at your life and be well pleased about it. He can find joy in the way we live. We don't want to be entangled with sin, habitual sin, and so on and so forth. And it's so easy to do in the community and the world in which we live, bringing pleasure to the Lord. And not only do we bring pleasure to the Lord, but text has disappeared again. We remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you, and listen, your joy may be complete. You see, if there's a Christian living outside the will of the Lord Jesus and not obeying the, his commands, I can tell you this, is not going to be a very happy chappy because his conscience tells him that he's going down the wrong road. You know, we've got two sons, as most of you know. They're grown up now and married and got their families. But I remember on one occasion when they were smaller, they were in their early teens, and there was a knock came to the door, and it was the next door neighbor. Were we aware that our boys were running around on my garage roof? Well, actually, no, we weren't. We'll have a word with them. I'll tell you what, 
They weren't too happy when they were standing at attention in front of father and mother trying to explain their actions. And we have to give an account to the Lord for the way in which we live. And if we're not living in obedience to him, if we're not complying with his will, we're going to have to tell him about it and talk to him about it, and he's going to talk to us, and we're not going to be very happy about it. We need to live in a way which brings joy to the Lord. And when he went to the cross, he could see through the cross, and he could anticipate the joy that would be his when his converted people lived lives of obedience to him. One more text, and it's in Jude. To him, this is a great doxology. We're all familiar with it. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and without great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Oh, we've said that many times, haven't we? We've used it many times. But look what it says. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, failing, and present you before his glorious presence, without fault, and with great joy. Oh, we've talked about the conversion. We've talked about complying in our life with his wishes. But now we've got to eternity. We've stepped into eternity, to this great occasion when the Lord will present to himself all his people, his brothers and sisters, his family, all the Christian church, all those that have come to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And it's going to be a wonderful, I believe, and glorious and joyful experience for us but more importantly, for him. He's going to present us to himself with great joy. And he's going to present us faultless. He's going to present us faultless. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi, and he said, you know, I'm certain that the one who started the good work in us will continue it until the day of the Lord Jesus. And day by day, the Lord works in our hearts and lives to bring us closer to him, to make us more like him. And that process will go on until then, when we step into his presence, and we will be found to be faultless. Can you anticipate that? That's something to be joyful about, and it's something that brings joy to the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? So you see, as Jesus walked the roads of Palestine, all the way to the 
cross at Calvary, he could see over it. He could see around it. He could see right through it to the other side. And what did he see? I say again, he saw you. He saw you and your conversion. He saw you struggling with life as we sometimes do. Struggling with temptation as we sometimes do. And he saw us too, perhaps, from time to time, living within the compass of his will. You see, he continues to work in us. We may fall, we may fail, but he never gives up on us. He's always there for us, no matter what our circumstances are. Joy for the Lord Jesus as a result of the cross. One of the things which motivated him to do it. Praise his name. Give him the glory. And you know, my hope and prayer is that every single one of us here in this congregation, and those of you good folk who are listening to this on, um, what is it, YouTube, every single one of us will be present at that great presentation you know and every single one of us will know what it is to to accept him as our savior and to seek to live a life with the help of the holy spirit that is well pleasing to him wouldn't it be good if that was the case for all of us at that time we're going to sing our closing hymn. And our little, and it is a little worship team here tonight. I don't know where the rest of them are on holiday or something, I expect. But uh, Laura and John hold the fort for us. And they've selected our closing hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross. And that would seem to me in view of the verses and the things that we've been thinking about, to be a very appropriate little song for us this morning. So let's stand and join them as we sing that together. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.